Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. In our Sacred Conversation series, at this point, we are reviewing and zooming in on the five verses that I use to share the gospel in all of my sermons almost. That's what I use to share the gospel one-on-one in personal evangelism. These are not the only verses you can use to articulate the gospel. This is what I do, and there's a reason for it. I began with this premise because I was trained in this originally, and I've adapted it, even kind of changing my verse selections and the way that I articulate it, given my evangelistic context. What began in the Deep South, if moved directly here, may not always work, right? Now, the same scripture is true in Egypt and in North Korea and in Florida and in Washington, but the way that I present it changes given my context slightly, but I never change my interpretation of the text because the text means the same thing here that it does in the Deep South, and it means the same thing now that it did 1,987 years ago. So this is the Word of God. We treat it that way appropriately. The way that I articulate the gospel has not changed from John 3.16 to Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 does perhaps get more emphasis in the Deep South. Here in the Seattle area, where we're more prone to virtue signaling, it's of a different ilk than what happens in the Deep South. In the Deep South, everybody claims to be a Christian, and Romans 3.23 is vital for popping our balloon, bringing us back down to earth, and getting us to face the ugly fact that we're actually sinners. In the Deep South, the numbers are inflated. We saw that during COVID. Church attendance was cut in half across the Deep South, and now it's still down 30% from what it was before COVID. What does that tell you? People who were faking it are out of the habit of going to church. Likely means, I can't speak condemnation or salvation over anybody, but it likely indicates they were never really saved to begin with. They were playing church and they were placating grandma by coming to church. Now here in Seattle, we really want to show how righteous we are, but in a different way. In the South, if you affiliate with Christianity, you can, in that sense, righteousness signal. But here, proclaiming Christ carries with it a totally different, totally different idea. Uh, I'm amazed, you know, when teaching apologetics uh, in the Deep South, it would begin differently. I actually wrote a resource called Faith and Reason. Man, that was like 12 years ago now. And it began by addressing like just questions of the origins of the universe and kind of taking on uh, even like evolutionary theory in the Big Bang. And I found that that could almost be counterproductive here in Seattle because what's first and foremost on people's minds here is what do you believe about sexuality? Uh, I know it's obscure, uh, but it's the reality of our context. People want to know first and foremost, what do you believe about LGBTQIAAP+, LGBTQIA+, right? Basically just homosexuality's influence on culture. The gay community kind of packaged sexuality in a civil rights formatting, basically appropriating the civil rights movement and then claiming to have been all born gay. And as a result, sexuality becomes a type of person. Now, I've already addressed this previously, but I want to paint the context here. We're all born this way. 
we're all born sinful. In Psalm 51, when David was confessing his sin, he's like, surely I was sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. We're born with this natural proclivity unto sin. And so we're all born this way, gay or straight. You're born with a desire to sin and an ability to sin, a natural gravity toward sinful behavior. And when you give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit moves in and convicts you for sin so that when you do cross the line, you feel convicted, you feel terribly about what you've done, and you repent, you turn away, you stop sinning. Famed Baptist pastor Adrian Rogers articulated it this way, to a non-Christian, sin is like mud for the pig. The non-Christian will roll in the mud and love it. The Christian in the mud will hate it and want to get out and get clean right away. So we as Christians, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we know that we're going to live the rest of our lives on earth doing war with the sin nature. In Romans chapter 7, Paul would say, what a wretched man I am. I don't understand the things that I do because I want to do the will of God, but when I try to do the will of God, sin is right there with me. And so he knows that the sin living within him is at war with the Spirit of God living within him. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. So that's Paul, the apostle, the earthly author and vessel through whom the Holy Spirit inspired the book of Romans, talking about his inner sense of torment. We were born this way. And in a sense, the born this way narrative works to the advantage of the Christian articulating the gospel, particularly when it comes to Romans 3.23. In a survey of atheists asking them their favorite Bible verses, this one actually came up. Most of them came from the Proverbs, but Romans 3.23 was one of the top verses in that thread. And it's because it's a totally different philosophical way of viewing human nature than is currently prominent through the virtue signaling culture. Within Romans 3.23, we see the truth that we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that we're totally depraved. Total depravity is the T in TULIP, the five points of Calvinism. It's also part of the Articles of Remonstrance, adhered to by the Arminians, the followers of Jacob Arminius. So wherever you stand on the soteriological spectrum, we believe that we're all born sinful, okay? Here's Romans 3. Let's begin in verse 19 to get a running start. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Okay, like the law has been proclaimed by God and we've all fallen short of it. We've all violated the law of God. The whole world is guilty. But now, sorry, actually, let me back up uh, verse 20. For, uh, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. If you're having a conversation with somebody who is very quick to jump on the hashtag trends, who's very quick to, when something happens in the headlines, post something to the effect of, this bad thing was bad. Okay, like we all know that this bad thing that happened was bad. You don't need to, every single time something bad happens, articulate its badness, like we're all aware of its badness. What they're really doing is saying like, I'm better than that. I'm a good person. I have virtue in my heart because I condemn that. Now, meanwhile, what they're not confessing is their own sin and the ways in which they violated the law. Everyone has something in their life, which if it were publicly exposed, they would be humiliated to the point they'd want to live like a hermit 
and just isolate from society the rest of their lives. Every one of us has sinned to some extent whereupon we would be rendered pariahs if our worst moments were broadcast publicly. The difference is that when we're Christians, God knows all of that about us and loves us still. That while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That's profound. That's incredible. That when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's 1 John 1, 9. See how the gospel is completely contrary to the cultural narrative, which tells people you've got a virtue signal all the time to offset your past bad, bad deeds. And the more outraged you are at sin in the world, the better a person you actually are. That's exhausting. It doesn't solve the problem, and it actually is pretty narcissistic because you're trying to draw attention to yourself, capitalizing on the opportunity presented by someone else's mistake and or suffering. It's the new pharisaicalism, if that's a word. The Pharisees wanted a virtue signal by showing everybody how strictly they adhere to the law of God and to the Talmud, their addenda onto what God actually prescribed. Within Seattle, we have our own legalism. You have to show solidarity and support. One of our favorite things, especially among white people, is raising awareness. <laughs> All right, I'm posting about this, I'm talking about this, I'm wearing this shirt, I'm participating in this demonstration or this parade to raise awareness. Like that accomplishes really anything, let's be honest. It doesn't actually accomplish anything, but it makes the person doing it feel better. Environmentalism can replace the law of God in our hearts if we, like a mostly atheistic city, this is the most atheistic city in the U.S., we have no logos, we have no spiritual basis. What more noble cause could there be than saving the world? And so the cause becomes, I don't know, just recycling more enthusiastically? I mean, like, I recycle too. I have to. I'll get, like, I don't know what the Revised Code of Washington says, probably get my head cut off if I put trash in my recycling bin. So I'm, I recycle just as much as the environmentalist, right? I pick up trash too, probably more so, because I'm a pastor <laughs> and I've got to clean up the church. So like, I mean, I get it, I get it. You want to align yourself with this greater, higher cause. You want to say that your life is significant and wow, how great do you feel about yourself if you say like, by eating at this vegan restaurant, I'm helping save the world. By picking my towels up off the hotel bathroom floor, I'm saving the zebras that are in that picture. I'm saving the world and it's futile. In fact, it's often just marketing, All right? I get it, the climate's changing, it's cool. I love my muscle car, but I know it's going away. But I'm not gonna be convinced that the world is ending, all right? We make fun of Christians who cry apocalypse, can we make fun of every environmentalist who has also ever been wrong about the end of the world? I saw the documentary. It won an Oscar. It showed my hometown underwater 20 years ago. It's not underwater, okay? I read the books about the coming ice age and how it was imminent. I read the books about global warming, how it was imminent. I get it. I'm not a climate change denier, but I think we need to make fun of the people who cry apocalypse under environmentalist terms just as much as we make fun of the Christians who outright defy what Jesus said in Matthew 24. When you don't have a moral logos like Jesus, it'll be replaced by something else. 
And oftentimes that's sexuality in Seattle or it's environmentalism in Seattle. They're trying to signal out how virtuous they are and the gospel is the total converse of that. Rather than signaling how virtuous you are, confess how sinful you've been. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. There it is. To all who believe, since there is no distinction, meaning between Jew and Gentile. This is part of the overall thesis of the book of Romans, that God elected Israel as his chosen people. And now, because of Jesus, Gentiles can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So, back up one more time to get a running start into verse 23. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Polar opposite of the virtue signaling culture that's here. Polar opposite. Instead of trying to offset previous sins with present good deeds, that's legalism and it's futile. You cannot undo the sin that you've done. But Jesus atones for the sins of all who believe in him. He is then the atoning sacrifice. Verse 25 says, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. It's about demonstrating the righteousness of God and not our own righteousness. Our own righteousness, Isaiah, as you'll see in our next series, will say, is like filthy rags. The most righteous thing we could accomplish is like the linens used to clean up after a biological mess that results from something that women have no control over. This is the polar opposite of what our culture says. Right? We've all sinned. That includes you and me, Christians. So in the sacred conversation, use the word we. We have sinned. Don't make it an accusatory sense like you have sinned because that precludes and overlooks your own sin. Okay, remember the woman at the well in John 4? God knows everything I ever did. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If people are going to be saved, they need to know that they need a savior. And they, there's freedom in this. You no longer have to join the cause du jour. You no longer have to post something on social media, citing the most trendy, recent moral hashtag. You are, you're not going to have to jump on the train that is careening down the slippery slope and champion the causes and raise awareness for the next group claiming victimhood and align yourself with them. Because for the record, I think that the next, the next step in all of this, just following the sequence of thought, I think that the next virtue signaling trend kind of has to be alignment with, if not polyamory and polygamy, it's probably gonna have to at some point and in some way be pedophilia. This is why there's a whole lot of grown men who want to be seen dressed as women in front of as many children as possible. This is why that trend is being, you know, put forth 
by Disney's new Hocus Pocus. It's, it's why their TV shows about it. It doesn't shock me, it actually confirms what I see here. Like we're depraved, we're just born sinful. We've all fallen short. It's countercultural, but it's freeing because at last they can admit, okay, I haven't really accomplished anything and I haven't offset any of my own sins. It's time to just be real about that and confess it to a gracious God who has made an atoning sacrifice to pay for my sins for me. When they grasp this message from Romans 3, verses 19 through 26, man, the weight will fall from their shoulders. If you want, Romans 3, 23, especially used in conjunction with verse 24, also articulates the gospel succinctly. So yesterday's John 3.16 could articulate the gospel succinctly. This as well, Romans 3.23, especially when used in conjunction with the following verses, could also be the only passage that you use in explaining the gospel and then praying it. 